Mick, how you doing? Justin, I am good. Happy 4th of July. Thank you. Happy Independence Day, I like to say. Oh, there you go. I like to be a little more specific than 4th of July. That doesn't surprise me, Justin. It doesn't (laughs) surprise me at all. So, how have you been? Good. Very good. Enjoying my time here in Michigan. You miss Sunny, uh, yeah, sunny, warm Michigan. (laughs) Uh, The only thing I really miss, no offense, Mick, is my staff. I I don't really miss most of my colleagues. Um, I don't know. I maybe you wouldn't find that surprising, but they're not I, generally I, I, the most delightful people. I tell you, I do miss some of the camaraderie. Um, you know, because I've been. You know, when you got over, it's a very flat organization. The house, right? Everybody's basically equal. Yeah, you got committee, sub chairman, and chairman. You got people in leadership and all that. But you know, then technically not your bosses. It's a flat organization. Um, so there's a lot of peers, uh, which I liked in Republicans and Democrats. Um, and, you know, it was fun hanging out with you and, and, and a, a variety of people. I mean, where else am I going to hang out with you and Trey Gowdy and Jared Polis and, you know, Jim Jordan? I mean, that's just a, it's it's you don't do that in most places anymore. Um, that changed when I got to the White House. And that's a very hierarchical sort of organization where I had you know, between 500 and 2,500 people working for me at any time. So, uh, and then now I'm in South Carolina and working by myself. So it's, uh, I do miss parts of it, but yeah, I, I don't, uh, I, I wouldn't change what I'm doing now to go back to DC. That's for sure. Yeah. I think that's an interesting point about, um, the way the house works. I mean, it is flat in a very real sense across much, much of it. And then you have obviously a few in leadership who are, at an elevated level, but um, largely flat and also very diverse in that you have people from across the country. So I got to learn all the dialects and, and accents and everything that I would not have experienced in any other organization. Like I can sort of pick out where someone lives now by what member of Congress they sounded like. See, it's very interesting because, you know, you talk about where else can folks with that diverse sort of opinions hang out and be friends. Where else can you hang out with 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 people from all over the country at one place? When we went to work on on any given day, there were folks from every single state. Right. You know, where else are you going to do that? That's kind of I'd never met. Um, I'd never met a Mormon before, I don't think, until I got to Congress. I don't certainly had never met many people from Idaho. Uh, or Oregon. I mean, I just, I, it's not, I'm an East Coast guy, right? So I, I thought it was fascinating. That part of it um, was great. And uh, if they're going to fix that institution, that's probably one of the uh, one of the tools they have available to them is that they've got a wonderful real diversity, not just racial, real diversity in that, in that, in that body. And that could be, that could be helpful if they use it properly. Yeah. A diversity that they don't really use because it's yeah. so tight, because the, the structure of the place is so top down in the sense of a few people dictating what's going on that they don't really use the the talents and skills and the diversity from across the the whole institution. Can you imagine what it's been like the last two years with COVID? I mean, listen, face it, if John Boehner or Paul Ryan could have sent us home and, and never had us come to Washington, D.C., he would have they would have done that in a second because, you know, members are nothing but a pain in the butt. When they're uh, when they're in Washington D.C. to leadership, so Nancy Pelosi has pretty much had free reign for the last two years because she hasn't, you know, that hasn't required people to be in Washington. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Mm. So, when you were in Congress, and I was thinking back on this, we ended up not serving as long as I sort of remember in my mind because you left at the beginning of. The Trump administration, right? Yeah, you and I both got there in eleven, and then I left in seventeen. Yeah. So, uh, did you leave right at the beginning of of seventeen? Yeah, I, I had a couple of votes. Or I did vote. I mean, I was there for a couple of votes. But once you're nominated for a cabinet position, typically you don't you don't vote anymore. Um, so I was on the floor until from January. I got confirmed uh, Valentine's Day, so I was in the, in the House for a month in seventeen. So I was looking back at the House Liberty Caucus scorecard, and for those who don't know, who are just listening, the House Liberty Caucus is a separate thing from the House Freedom Caucus. People sometimes get these confused. So I'm talking about the House Liberty Caucus, which is an organization I established 
which was a libertarian organization and brought us together for lunch and, and various um, activities. And I put out vote alerts and I used to score my colleagues. And I was looking back at the scorecards up to the time you were still there. And you were ranked the fifth most libertarian member in the entire House of Representatives. Now, did you think of yourself as a libertarian? And do you think of yourself that way? Or how would you describe yourself? Because your score on my scorecard was pretty good. Like, there aren't many... I mean, to get in the top five out of... The four hundred thirty-five members. That's was that's I the top good. five? Really? Who, who did, did I? Who, who was the top five? It was you and Massey. Well, and, at, and, so I want to say at the time. Yeah. Um, at the time, I don't. I'd have to pull it up again. I I, it was obviously me and Massey at, at at the top there, and then I think Walter Jones had a really good score at the time. Um, and I I can't remember who the next person would have been. It could have been like a Labrador or a Sanford or, or someone like that. But um, but you had one of the best scores in the entire House of Representatives. Now, did you think of yourself as a libertarian? No, I didn't. I, you know, I, I, I knew what I wasn't. I wasn't a liberal and I wasn't a neoconservative. Um, you know, I was – I'm a little bit older than you. I'm 54, so I sort of, you know – Reagan was 13 when I got I was 13 when Reagan got elected and I was what 21 when he left office. And those are sort of your formative years, maybe. Um, and I just liked his approach, which was limited government. Um, does that make me a libertarian? Eh, probably more libertarian than anything else these days. Um, but I just I, I knew what I wasn't and I wasn't a liberal and I wasn't neoconservative. I was fiscally conservative. Um, I believed in limited government. I thought limited government provided us with a lot of answers on how to solve problems. We can talk today about the Dobbs decision if you want to and how that um, is really sort of a pro-libertarian, pro-federalist type of approach. Keep in mind, I'm also a devout Roman Catholic and one of the one of our tenets of our the structure of of the Catholic Church is what they call subsidiarity, which is the concept that uh, decisions that can be made locally should be made locally. Um, and that's sort of, believe it or not, how the church is run. People think the church is run from Rome. It's not. Um, it is on some things, but on a day-to-day basis, it's not. And so if that's sort of the culture you're raised in, where does that drop you philosophically? Probably closer to being libertarian than anything else. I was a pro-life libertarian. How about that? Does that make sense? Yeah, there are a lot of pro-life libertarians. I yeah. mean, it's possible that about half the libertarians or people who call themselves libertarian are, are pro-life. Um, I was looking back at the scorecard now, and again, this is this is only a scorecard going through 2016, roughly. Yeah. And um, it looks like it was me, Massey, uh, Jones, and Labrador, and then you were next, and then uh, our buddy Mark Sanford was right after you. Ha! I beat Sanford. Um, thank you for that. Well, oh, up to, at, at that point, yeah, you. I think you left Congress with a higher score than Mark Sanford. Yeah. I should have. I'm I'm a better congressman than he is. <laughs> I don't know. Well, Mark might dispute that, but um, so well, Mark, Mark, Mark would say something along the lines of, "Well, that's very interesting." Uh, to be continued. So yeah, yeah. to be continued. For I'll say, th- I'll say this know, for Mark, for people who don't know who are listening. Mark Sanford was my governor, and the reason I got into politics somehow he conned me into running for state office back in two thousand and six. So I blame him for this particular career choice. I just loved watching Mark at the House Liberty Caucus lunches because he would <laughs> he would put so much on his plate that no, I wondered he, he took all the leftovers. I wondered if I wondered if he was eating normally. Like, did he just not eat the whole week and then he came to the lunch and and that was it? He he no, took all. I, of- I, I, I'll tell you a story about Mark, and I'll butcher it because it's been twenty years now since Mark was the governor. But back when he was governor, he had four young children at the time. They have four sons, right? And these were young kids. They were probably pre-teenagers at the time. And they discovered black mold in the governor's mansion in Columbia, South Carolina. And, of course, you can't. That's really dangerous stuff. So we, I, we made arrangements. They, I wasn't in the legislature at the time. They made arrangements for Mark to move into another house in Columbia. And he said, no, it would be cheaper for him to live in the pool house. The governor's mansion has a, has a pool and there's a pool house, which is, you know, a one-room building. 
and that's where Mark lived with his wife and four kids for the 18 months while they redid the, the, the governor's mansion. So he's just cheap is what I'm trying to say. So if he knew he had a Liberty Caucus lunch on Tuesday and a Republican Study Committee lunch on, on Wednesday and then a Freedom Caucus lunch on, on Thursday, he wouldn't eat the rest of the week. He would wait to go to those dinners, uh, lunches, eat everything, and then take all of the leftovers back to his uh, to his office. Now, when we were starting the House Freedom Caucus, what was in your mind with respect to how you wanted the organization to look? Uh, we were remember I've said this before, and I don't know if I'm the only one who remembers this. But, you know, my working title was the Reasonable Nutjob Caucus. We had come up with that sort of that test. I don't know if you remember this or not, but we had an unwritten test. That I do. I didn't, I didn't like the name, but yes, I remember. Yeah, the, the test was you had to be able to vote against a rule, um, which you know is one of the most treasonous, you know, anti-leadership things you can do to vote against a procedural moat, uh, vote to, to, on a rule on a bill. And you also had to be able to vote for a continuing resolution because that was the most obsequious sort of sycophantic thing you could do to leadership. But if we, if we thought that there was a plan, that we as a group had a plan and a strategy, and that required us to vote against a rule or for a CR, that we wanted folks who could do that. They could be reasonable and play the long game. Um, and that's what, I was, that's what I hoped the Freedom Caucus uh, would have become. It's what it was for a while. Uh, it turned into an outrage you know, machine fundraising thing. Um, under Meadows' leadership. We can talk about that later if you want to. Um, but I was hoping that it would be the true conservative group because the Republican Study Committee had sort of lost that mantle uh, over the course of the last 20 years. So we were trying to recreate the study group uh, with something that was a little bit more controllable uh, while still reasonable. That was my impression of what's, what we were trying to start. So for those who are listening, when they hear you talk about uh, the rule, like voting against the rule, it should be made clear that there is a procedural rule that precedes um, most of the votes on legislation. And the only way really to stop something from going forward that um, either doesn't meet, doesn't meet your requirements or maybe is not very uh, democratic in the sense that it doesn't allow, allow a lot of input, not, not enough amendments, etc., is to vote against this rule and, and essentially to vote against your leadership. So those who control the process really control the entire House of Representatives, and, and the leadership generally control the process. So the only way to stop them is really to wrestle control of the process and then negotiate with them essentially on some alternative to the process. Did you come up through state legislature? Were you in the state I did, yes. Yeah, yep. So did I. And we had real rules there. You followed Robert's Rules of Orders or Jefferson's or something like that. And there were rules. And there was a rule book. And you can go and know what the rules were for everything. It's sort of like going to court with civil procedure. We all know what the rules are. And everybody plays by the same rules. I didn't realize until I got to Congress that Congress doesn't have that. Congress doesn't have any rules. What we, what we do is we give that control to the Speaker of the House. And the Speaker of the House essentially sets a rule for every piece of legislation, when it can be argued, how long it can be uh, debated, who can debate, um, who can debate for how long, how many amendments can be offered, who can offer amendments. All of that is, is, is handled by the Speaker and through his leadership team. So it's tremendous power. It also can be completely uh, sort of uh, – it retards really good debate and the kind of stuff that you and I thought we were getting into when we ran for Congress. It's, it's, it's not very healthy. I think it's one of the reasons that Congress is structurally broken, um, is that there, there are no rules and that uh, it's sort of the whim of the leadership. And I, don't, I didn't like that. And you're right. And the only way to, 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 to fight that was to take that power back and vote against the rule on any particular bill. Yeah, to be clear, there are underlying rules. It's just that they're not followed in the sense that <laughs> they, are, they are overridden by these other remember, procedural remember rules. Day, remember the three-day yeah. rule? Remember that one? Yeah. 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 They, so we used to have this, this rule, which, which Boehner said, hey, we're going to give you this three-day rule. And we all thought initially that this was going to be 72 hours to read a piece of legislation. And it turned out that the way Boehner interpreted it was you had 24 hours plus a fraction of a second on each of the other days 
So you could introduce something at Tuesday, on Tuesday at 11:59 p.m. and you could vote on Thursday at at midnight essentially when on the you know when the clock struck 12 to uh, start Thursday you could you could start voting on it. Yeah. Um they would call that 3 days because it touches 3 days. Um it was it well, was pretty pretty well, insane. We suspend we you know on really important stuff we just suspended it. We voted to suspend that rule, right? Yeah. Yep. That was part part of the rule vote, part of the procedural vote that we had to be able to vote against in the Freedom Caucus was was that it'll set the the debate and they could say, well, we'll waive the three day rule. It was just it was hypocrisy at the highest level. It's one of the things that disappointed me most about getting to Washington D.C. was that you know I grew up in the contract for America. We had this you know pathetic sort of uh, pledge to America when Boehner was the speaker, and even though it was poorly written, it was eighty five pages long. We didn't even follow it. You know, it's like we told people we'd do this if we got elected and we get there and go, yeah, this is really hard to do. So let's let's change the promise that we made and and still try and convince people we're not lying to them. I hated that hypocrisy. But Washington is thick with it. So you watched the House Freedom Caucus deal with Donald Trump from your perch in the administration. What, from your perspective, happened to the House Freedom Caucus? Um, it's a really good question. Um, what happened? What I know what it became. And what it became because I it, assume I yeah. assume that you were still in contact with Jordan and Meadows, and I mean, obviously I talked to you from time to time as well. But there was a sense in which they were really running the show um, from a House leader, uh, House Freedom Caucus leadership standpoint. So I assume you were still in contact with them. What happened? I I, no, I wasn't in, I wasn't nearly in as much contact with them as you might think. Keep in mind, when I first got there, I was running the Office of Management and Budget, um, which is about a 16-hour-day job anyway, and so I didn't have a lot of time to maintain a lot of the relationships. I did talk to folks from time to time, but it's not like I had daily, weekly, or even monthly scheduled meetings with House Freedom, House Freedom Caucus. I mean, I was down there beating my brains out to get the budget done and to, you know, but by the way... Um, when you when we say the budget, the office of management budget writes the budget. Yeah, and that's a really really intense job for a couple of a couple of weeks, couple of months. But it's not the full job. We we were responsible for every single dollar that went out. The office of management budget is sort of the clearinghouse for all of the money, and money doesn't move from the treasury to say the environmental protection agency without OMB checking on it. So we, we were the we were the, the gatekeepers for all of the money that flows from Treasury out into the world. Um, we were also the gatekeeper for just about every regulation. So if the, the Department of Commerce wanted to flow to regulation, they had to show that to us first and we show it to everybody else and socialize it. So it's a huge, huge job. So I didn't it's not like I, I moved I was still a member of Congress and I was still talking to those folks. What I don't understand, Justin, and I know this is part of your frustration, is I don't know when it came from we were designed to be independent from leadership. We were going to be true north. We were going to be conservative regardless of whatever. And somehow it became, you know, the, 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 the foot soldiers for Trump. And I liked it, you know, to a certain extent because I was working in administration. But I remember, you know, Trump, you know, offering some spending limits that the Freedom Caucus never would have supported if it was an Obama administration. So I don't know where we lost that. And we, we became sort of the Freedom Caucus became... Uh, whatever Trump says is good by us. I, I thought that was damaging to the brand. We needed to stay independent and stay conservative. Uh, and I think we're paying a price for it right now. I mean, right now, if you ask the general electorate, you know, is the is the Republican Party better on spending than Democrats? The answer is probably, eh, maybe not. We, you know, we spent just as much as they did. Um, and we needed the Freedom Caucus to be conservative and anti-Trump for a while. And Meadows and Jordan didn't do that. But this is a strange thing coming from you because you were in the Trump administration. Yeah. Well, it, it, <laughs> yeah, but, yeah, but well, you need the. I mean, weren't you yourself working on spending and deficit no. and debt issues? Yeah, but keep in mind how it works when you're the budget director. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I get to write the budget, right? I do. And then you show the budget to the president. The president says, "Okay, change this, 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 and this." And you try to convince him not to change this, 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 and this. Um, and when he looks at you and says, is this your budget or my budget? I'm like, Mr. President, this is your budget. He goes, good. Do what I do what I just said. I'll give you a small example. OK, um, I cut funding to the Special Olympics in my budget. OK, because it's a it's a foolish use of government money. I think you probably agree with that. Right. It's got plenty of corporate support. It's a wonderful cause. 
but government isn't a charity, right? That's not that's not what we do. We want we, that's not our role. It's not responsible to taxpayers. It was not a good expenditure of funds. Um, and the president found out about it and said, "Put that back in." We are you nuts? I'm going to get killed on this politically. You going after you know special needs kids? I'm like, Mr. President, this is they don't need the money. We're only this amount of money. You, you make all the rational arguments, and at the end of the day, he says, "Spend the effing money. You're going to spend the money." So at the end of the day, while the the, the budget, I'm the budget director. It's the president's budget and will reflect his priorities. You have all of those discussions about trying to be more fiscally conservative, spending money here, not spending money there inside the family. And when you're done and the president says, that's my budget, you go out and defend it. Uh, it would have been nice at that time if we, I'd had somebody on the Hill going, uh, I'm not going to vote for this because it spends too much money. And we didn't have nearly enough folks doing that. Now, did you get the sense that he was extremely moved, I, I mean, President Trump, extremely moved by public opinion um, or at least bad media because he didn't have deep principles? So, in a sense, whatever would work for him at the moment was what he was going to do. If people said, hey, you can't cut this for political reasons, he was quick to say, yeah, put it back in. Yeah, he had. I mean, to say he didn't have principles is not right. That's not. That's not fair to him. They, he did have some. Well, I said deep. Have, okay, yeah, deep, no, go no, ahead. No, deep, and, the, and the deep principles were this: uh, government taxes too much, government regulates too much, and we we let the rest rest of the world freeload on us. Okay, those are deeply held principles from Donald. And he hated China. Okay, these were deep principles that he had, and he hated the fact that you know we paid for NATO. And the Europeans weren't living up to their financial commitments. That was he. He really believed that, and I think you saw that throughout our policies. He hated government regulation because he had been in the private sector and knows how the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers is miserable to work with when you're trying to build a road or build a building or something like that. So that was a a fundamental principle to him. And he hated the tax system. He thought it was way too too complicated and way too high. So those were deep-seated principles. He did, did he have did he have the same sort of limited government general principles that you and I have? No. I mean, he used to be a Democrat, for goodness sake. Um, you know, so when it came to things like the public broadcasting money and, uh, like I said, Special Olympics, stuff that you and I believe is not the proper function of government, he did not share that same those same principles in that same background. And if you look at that, if he would look something like that over and say, "I'm going to get pummeled on this politically." Uh, I don't really care that much about whether or not we fund Special Olympics. It's not that much money. Why am I? Why? Why are we fighting about this, Mick? Put the money back in. So that's where. Um, that's what we got to. Yeah. When it comes to the House Freedom Caucus, and we talked about how it it changed during the Trump administration. Do you feel like all of Republican politics sort of morphed in one direction, and you couldn't really distinguish the House Freedom Caucus that much from Republican leadership anymore? You know, I, I wasn't I wasn't in the you know, I wasn't down there when I was in the when I was in the White House. I wasn't down on the hill and I wasn't seeing what you guys were doing. But I think it's fair to say that the Freedom Caucus sort of took on a different persona when we were in the majority um, and that there was not that much. Yeah, there was not that much difference anymore. Certainly there were individual members who didn't like the levels of spending. Um, and many of them voted against continuing resolutions. Many of them voted against the appropriations bills and so forth. But I never got the feeling that there was this coordinated effort to stay true to the principle of limited government and less spending, um, that, that they had become somewhat compromised by both the virtues of the virtues of both the facts that we were now in the White House and in charge in Congress. Now, at the end of the Trump administration, you said that Trump would concede gracefully, and I'm wondering how you could have possibly believed that. Oh, it was easy. Easy. If you have you read the have you read the piece or just the headline? I no, I think I read the piece, <laughs> at one day, but it was a while ago. It was a while ago. It was. So, if you read the piece, that's all based on history. Um, the man was famous for kicking and screaming and yelling and making a big deal out of something. And at the end, doing the right thing. Um, he was also within the building regularly pushing back on things that he thought were just too crazy. Um, you know, there was one time that um, uh, remember that during the government shutdown, uh, you're think, saying you're saying Trump was pushing back on things that were too crazy. Yeah, well, I'll give you I'll give you an example. I okay. Give you, uh, and I, I mentioned this example, I think, in, in the Wall Street Journal piece which is that um, during the government shutdown, 
Nancy Pelosi um, was going to go overseas on a on a junket, right, on one of those codels that, that that you get to do. And I thought that was just outrageous. In the middle of a government shutdown, here she was taking a group of lawmakers overseas on a taxpayer-funded trip. So I tried to come up with ideas on how to stop it, and I had a couple of ideas. And my best idea that I went to the president with, Mr. President, you know, um, we control the planes that she takes, so we know when she's leaving. Um, and we could actually go out there and be waiting for her on the tarmac when she pulls up, um, you know, in her limo and say, Nancy, where are you going? Why are you leaving? Uh, why, why are you getting on this airplane and going overseas? Why would you stay with me and talk to me about the things that we need to talk about in order to get the government back up and running um, and, and make a big show of it? We were going to tell the press there. And he looked at me and said, are you crazy? That's that's don't give me that petty crap. I'm, I'm, the, I'm the president of the United States. I'm not going to do showboat stuff like that. What's what, what's your next idea? Oh, geez. Um, well, you know, we, we control the planes. I could just deny her the plane. He's like, we can do that? I'm like, yeah, he goes, well, do that. And that's what we did. We, we, we denied them the plane. Um, and that's why that bus with the, full of the freshman members was driving around Washington, D.C., trying to figure out where to go because they'd already picked them up from the, from the House office buildings who were driving out to, to Edwards to get on the, or Andrews, to get on the, um, to get on the plane. And the pl- we got the message the plane was denied, and that made that sort of that media circus. But my point of telling that story is that he didn't like the visuals of something that was a little too petty for him as president of the United States. And I, I, I thought for sure that that sort of mentality would, would, pre- would, would prevail at the end. Um, what I didn't realize, Justin, is that um, the White House in January, November, December, January 2021, was nowhere near what it was like when I was there. The place um, it can only be described as a, as a goat rodeo, as a clown show. I think you're starting to see that now. Um, as part of the testimony in the January 6th commission that Mark Meadows was completely detached um, and was essentially letting anybody in the world into the Oval Office um, and that anybody who was trying to speak reasonably to the president was excluded and the only people that got in there were nut jobs like Peter Navarro and Lynn Wood and Sidney Powell and Rudy Giuliani and Mike Lindell. And, and that was the inner circle. Um, and when you, when, you, when you surround yourself with people of such low quality, you're going to make you're going to do really, really stupid things. And that's 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 what happened at the end of the administration, in my mind, that the, the structure of the West Wing broke down. And that's why my prediction was so terribly, terribly wrong. Yeah, I mean, for months, I thought that Trump would not leave office. I mean, I, I had a different perception. Now, I, I didn't serve in the White House, obviously, but my sense and I was telling people, I thought if Trump lost, he wasn't going to leave. I actually couldn't think of a scenario where he would leave. Um, so I guess I came at it from a from a different standpoint where um, I, I wasn't surprised by any of it. Now, I, I did talk a lot to a lot of our colleagues on January 6th, after January 6th. Um, and what i find interesting is that even the most libertarian and conservative colleagues that we had who today are putting up this front that um in some cases that january 6 wasn't a big deal or you know it's being exaggerated i remember talking to them and they themselves told me without prompting that uh, Donald Trump almost successfully executed a coup that Donald Trump almost got um, Congress to give up its checks and balances. He almost broke down our system of of divided powers. What is going on that on January 6th or January 7th or around that time, these people in real time will tell you, Oh my gosh, I can't believe what just happened, but now they say, uh, no big deal, it's exaggerated, it's just people protesting, etc. Well, I mean, I guess if, if I wanted to defend that, um, and I don't, uh, but if I wanted to play devil's advocate, I, I think anytime when you're going through a, a, a very traumatic sort of experience, you don't have all the facts. And my guess is what they say now is that they have all the facts. They've listened to Sean Hannity 
and they have all the facts they need, right? I, I happen to disagree with that vehemently, especially after the testimony this past week. Um, but for, I'll speak to myself. I'll speak to myself. I quit, okay, uh, the, night, the night of the 6th and, and delivered my resignation the 7th. I talked to Pompeo that night and sent him a letter the next day. I quit that night after the I was actually in D.C. for the riots and flew home um, that evening. Um, but I defended the president after that. Why, why are those two things in my mind consistent? Because um, I quit not because I thought the president committed impeachable offenses or crimes. I thought the president failed at being the president. I mean, at a, at a time like that, when there's a riot in the Capitol, it looks like it's trying to prevent the, the peaceful transfer of power. Um, it's time for the president to step up and say, no, stop, go home. If you think this is what I want, I, let me make this very clear. I do not want this. Um, and I was texting Mark Meadows. He wasn't responding. I was tweeting, trying to get somebody to, to pick up the phone down there. Um, and then when I saw the president on, on video and say, uh, you know, uh, go home, we love you. I'm like, I'm out. That's not that's not the president that, that I serve for. That's not that's that we've just completely destroyed the legacy of this administration today. Um, so I had that same visceral reaction. Now, a week later, people ask me, oh, would you vote to impeach? I'm like, no, because impeachment's a legal proceeding and the charge was incitement and there was no evidence at the time for incitement. Okay. By the way, I think one of the reasons Cassidy Hutchinson's testimony is so powerful is the president knew there were guns. Um, then maybe that maybe my defense falls apart. That's why I wrote the USA Today piece last week that says I can't defend the president anymore until we figure out this gun thing. Um, so the, 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 the short answer to your question is how do people change their minds by getting different evidence? And that's what you should do. Right. I happen to disagree with the folks who think it was a, you know, a big deal on the 6th and not a big deal anymore. It's absolutely a big deal. And um, I wish those people were watching the hearings. My guess is they are not. And that's that's a shame. That's a shame that you're not willing to look at evidence. That's that's stupid. I recognize the fact that it's it's one sided. I recognize the fact you're not seeing all the testimony. I recognize the fact that that everybody in that commission hates Donald Trump. I get that. But when a Republican witness gets up and tells me under oath that Donald Trump knew there were guns, I'm paying attention to that. And so should they. So that's a really long answer to your when, question. I apologize. No, no problem. When when you resigned, you said Trump, and you've said this a few times today, Trump was not the same as he was eight months ago. Yeah. Now, you mean Trump the individual, the administration? Um, what did you mean by that? Both. And, both. The, the president, I'll, give you, I'll give you a small example, okay? Um, did you watch the hearing on Tuesday in Cassidy's testimony? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So a lot of the stuff, you know, a lot of the stuff sensational gets a lot of attention. That's one of the things I paid attention to was the plate throwing. Okay, I never saw that. Uh, did I see Donald Trump have a temper? Absolutely. Have I seen you have a temper? Absolutely. Have I seen other people yell and bang a table all my life? Okay, that doesn't stand out in my mind. It never even entered my mind that the president would pick up a plate of food and throw it at the wall and break it. That's not the president that I that I searched. Does he have a temper? Yes. Again, a lot of people do. I never saw him pull tablecloths off and, you know, and knock stuff on the floor. Did I see him get red faced and, you know, and bang the table and clap his hands? Yes. But there was something different there late in the administration. I, I wonder how much of that is it was created by the fact that he had surrounded himself with such idiots uh, by that time um, that, you know, if you're getting your constitutional law advice from the guy that sells you pillows, you're probably listening to the wrong people. Um, and, and, you know, if you're getting advice from Peter Navarro in the first place on anything, you're probably listening to the wrong people. So it was a different place. And I think that's starting to come out now at the testimony after Tuesday um, and Mark Meadows's central role in allowing it to happen uh, sort of uh, is noteworthy as well. Now, in fairness, I remember visiting the White House while you were chief of staff and um, I came there with House Freedom Caucus leadership, I think. I think maybe it was the board members. Um, you may remember, I don't know, you had a lot of meetings, so it's possible you don't remember this. But um, Donald Trump was there. He spoke to us. Uh, we were supposed to have a conversation with him. I can't remember what the topic was actually at the time. But uh, there was some effort to persuade him on something, and we had an hour meeting with him. And he spoke for about, I don't know, 57 minutes out of the hour. Um, it was it was pretty much the whole time that, that he spoke. I do remember that, um, you know, he was charming as he often is in meetings. For those who 
who don't like him, you know, as a president or find him disgusting, etc. He he does charm people in meetings. Um, but what I found interesting at the time is that after the meeting, a few of the staff, and I'm talking about White House staff, came up to me and were whispering to me, thanking me for whatever efforts I was involved in that were critical of the administration. And I remember it feeling like a hostage situation where they almost seemed like they were crying for help and they were being held hostage. So I I know you describe things having changed, but weren't there problems for a long time? I mean, I got this vibe that was really weird to me. I remember leaving the White House thinking, what the heck is going on that staff are coming up to me and whispering thanks to me and encouraging me to keep pushing? I, I couldn't understand how bad it must have been there. Do you disagree with that assessment? Are you saying yeah, it was? Well, I mean, I, I, I it can't was, disagree with your. I can't disagree with your assessment because it's your impression, right? If you think, yeah, that's you, my. You, that was my impression yeah, exactly. for sure. I, I can tell you how we ran the place and why that example that you just gave appears to me to be different than what I envision happening after the election. Okay, which is mm-hmm. who's in the room? It's it's you and Jim Jordan and Mark Meadows and uh, probably at that time maybe well DeSantis was probably gone by then but DeSantis may have been there. They were they were reasonable people, and, and they may disagree on topics. We you know we had Democrats down there all the time. Um, you know Nancy would come down. We had the problem solvers caucus, caucus down there, but they're members of Congress, um, and whether or not we agree with them or disagree with them, we're going to have a debate. Now the president um, used to love to manage by conflict. Um, those meetings we took. You know, with the Freedom Caucus, mostly to to maintain relationships and so forth. It's one of the reasons he would he would speak a lot. But you measure that against something like a trade meeting, where we'd have Wilbur Ross and Bob Lighthizer in the room with Peter Navarro, who are the most protectionist people you've ever met, and Gary Cohn and Stephen Mnuchin, and they're yelling and screaming at each other. That's how the president managed. He managed by conflict because he thought it got better information out. He perceived himself to be a judge. Um, and he would have people in the room and enjoyed having people in the room that disagreed with each other. When I got hired, I remember telling um, the, the transition team, I said, God, you recognize that I'm like the most fiscally conservative member of Congress and the president is not a fiscally conservative person. I mean, if they're looking for a yes man, I'm probably not the best person for this job. He said, no, 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 this guy loves fighters. He loves conflict. He loves people who disagree with each other. So he's going to throw you in a room with three ex-Democrats who are now, you know, in, on the administration who want to spend a bunch of money and see you guys slug it out. That's that's how he liked to do it. Did everybody flourish in that type of environment? Probably not. I happen to like it. But the, the reason I tell all the stories is to get to the end of what it must have been like in November, December, and January, which is it's not you anymore. Um, it's it, it's not Stephen Mnuchin. It's just the crazy people. And whereas there were always going to be crazy people, Peter Navarro was there forever. Every time Navarro went in the office, I made sure that there was a reasonable person in the office as well to sort of provide some balance. Um, And my guess is that's what didn't happen late. And when you just surround yourself with crazy people, you're going to start thinking crazy things. Now, none of this uh, is to absolve the president of any responsibility for anything that he did. He's responsible for his own actions. And he's also responsible for picking his own advisors. So ultimately, you know, the buck stops at the top. Um, But I also, as a staffer, as a former staffer, recognize the importance of giving good advice and conducting myself as a good staffer. And as I looked over that testimony from last week, I got a very clear image in my mind of a West Wing that was full of people who were not very good staffers. But as you said, if the president is is, uh, filling his West Wing with people who are terrible staffers, isn't that on him? Sure it is. Sure it is. But, I mean, Mark Meadows' job was to make sure that it wasn't – He was, Mark, Mark Meadows was never going to keep Rudy Giuliani out of, the, out of the Oval Office. I get that. I, I suffered through that. I, I know that. Okay? He was never going to keep Mike Lindell out. The president did not like anybody else uh, filtering and, and being a true gatekeeper. Okay? I was never really able to keep anybody out of the, of the Oval Office. I was able to keep Mike, uh, Peter Navarro off TV for nine months, which was a huge success. 
but that's another story. Um, so what By the I way, I'm, I'm totally with you on the Peter Navarro thing. He should be in a padded room someplace. Um, but the, uh, the, uh, the, the, what I could do as the chief of staff was make sure that every time somebody like that was in there, there was some balance. There was somebody else, the White House counsel's office. Um, you know, a, a secretary, cabinet secretary that Mike Pompeo was on the phone uh, as part, you know, on, on the call so that when everybody came in and said, Mr. President, I think what we need to do is blow up the moon with nuclear weapons. And I'm being facetious been saying that. But, you know, something really, really crazy. There's somebody reasonable in the room or on the phone saying that, Mr. President, if we blow up the moon with nuclear weapons, we're going to end up killing everybody. Oh, OK, that's great. Then we're not going to blow up the moon with nuclear weapons. Um but by the end, it sounds like Mark was just not able to find people or not not willing to engage to get people to go in to bring that type of balance back to the force and that it was all crazy all the time. And again, presence that doesn't absolve the, the actions. But uh, to me, it does show a failure of leadership of the staff. Now, I want to get back to the Mark Meadows thing in a second. But you yourself were not a Donald Trump supporter when he was running for office. Um the first time, and I don't know where you stood the second time, but he you called him a terrible human being. You said he'd be disqualified from office in an ordinary universe. <laughs> so so what, what happened that put you in a position where you said, I'm going to go work for this guy? Yeah, well, keep in mind that's uh, – that, that's that's I love that line. And President never let me forget that. He used to used – to, Rib me with that all of the time. Um, do you remember? You don't know when it was, right? Um, that was the evening that the Access Hollywood tape came out, um, and I had a debate. I was running for Congress at the time. It was election season. I had a debate that night, and that was my initial reaction to that. And by the way, I stand by that initial reaction. I was I was shocked by that, and that that, that statement that that statement would end. Anybody else's political career is absolutely factual. You know, if you and I had said that or anybody else had said that, we'd be done. And somehow the rules don't apply uh, to Donald Trump. Um, The way I came to work for him after that was, listen, by the way, the reaction within the Trump team was the same. His reaction was the same. He thought his career was over um, uh, the night that tape came out. Um, And so I was not the only one thinking that this was a really, really bad thing and probably disqualifying folks from office. You know, at the end of the day, what did he say? He said, look, I, it's, it's locker room talk and you, it is what it is. And I'm like, you know, I, okay. I, I, I worked with a guy long enough to know he was absolutely not a racist. He's absolutely not a misogynist. Um, does he have a very, very, very brash style? Yes, he does. Does it turn off a lot of people? Yes, he does. Is it easy for everybody who's never liked him to look back and say, oh, I predicted all of this was happening. I knew he was a terrible person from the get-go. Those are folks who probably didn't know him very well. Um, and certainly one of the things he did was 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 confirm everything they said. But those, if, I, if I thought the guy was a racist or misogynist, I wouldn't have worked for him. Um, and I was always able to look at the people who worked for me at OMB and CFPB and in the West Wing and tell them the same thing, which is that, look, I, I know the guy's got a tough personality. He's different than I am. Uh, we got a different style, but I, I don't think he's a terrible human being. But didn't you get the sense? It's one thing to say, okay, he's not a racist or a misogynist or or whatever, and have have your opinion of that of him because you've got that personal interaction with him. But wouldn't you say that he courted those types of people? That a lot of his public, especially some of his public rhetoric that was off the wall, um, off color at times, that it was an attempt to court some of these people? Court. I don't know if that's the right word. I I think it may have had the impact of doing that. I'll answer your question this way, and I have no firsthand knowledge of this. It's his educated guess, okay? During one of the debates, the the moderator asked him about whether or not, started asking questions about white supremacist groups, Right. And, of course, the underlying message there is the president is a closet white supremacist, which would piss me off if someone made that suggestion about me. And this is where he came with a, with, with a with the line, give me a name, give me a name, one name. And the, and the moderator said the Proud Boys. And he says, you know, Proud Boys, stand back and stand by or whatever he said. Right. And that's probably a, an example of what you talked about, about courting those groups. My gut, my educated guess is at that particular time, President Donald Trump had no idea who the Proud Boys were, had never heard of them before. 
and was just angry and fighting back against the moderator because that's what he does. He would never admit, I don't know who that is, right? Because that's, that's, that's just not, that's not his style. He never admits that he doesn't know anything, right? Um, his style was to push back. I could be wrong about that. Like I said, it's an educated guess. I don't have any firsthand knowledge. Um, but to your point, does, does that mean he was, was he, was he, was he courting those people? No. Does, does his style attract those sorts of people? Yeah. It's, I, I think that's probably a better way to look at it. Well, this is one of the issues with Donald Trump is that in every scenario in which he's accused of doing something wrong, someone can either justify or excuse it as, well, it's just part of his ego. Um, he's not doing something harmful here. I mean, even take the January 6th hearings. We, we talk about Cassidy Hutchinson. Someone could make the argument, oh, well, you know, the whole magnetometer thing, he just, he just wants a big crowd. It's just his ego. It has nothing to do with putting the capital in danger or anything else. So, I mean, this seems to be an ongoing issue with Donald Trump in that it's always used as a justification or excuse for whatever he's doing. Well, I mean, that's that's because if you're going to accuse somebody of incitement to riot, if you accuse somebody of sedition, um, you, you better have more than just I don't like this guy and there's circumstantial evidence. You've got to have facts. You know that. Right? Yeah, absolutely. Which is why I think the last hearing was so monumental um, in that it's the first time that I heard evidence that he knew there were guns. OK, that's a big deal. That's an absolutely big deal. And that's why I've stopped defending him, because now there's a new piece of evidence there um, that would suggest that maybe it's not just his his ego and maybe it's not just his personality. Maybe it's just not a coincidence that he said this and that happened. Right. Same is true with the. Uh, the allegations of communications between the Proud Boys and, and, and Mark Meadows. So whether or not the president knew who the Proud Boys were during that debate, which I doubt that he did, um, um, and by the time that January 6th rolled around, that someone was in communication with somebody in the White House, that's a serious allegation with some evidence now uh, presented. So that's, that's, that's the type of stuff that gets my attention. L- listen, there's a lot of people who want to see the worst in Donald Trump every single time, and whenever the man says anything, they, they want to claim he's committing a crime or undermining democracy. I got no time for that. I'm interested in facts, right? And I had facts on my side in defending him in that I had seen things in the past. I had seen firsthand his personality. I had developed my own opinions of him, etc. Those in my mind were solid. And they was not based on just what I call Trump derangement syndrome. Uh, and that's where I thought a lot of the, the pushback against Trump was over the course of the last four or five years. Now, as of last Tuesday, now there's 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 evidence. It's not it's not completely determinative because it could be refuted. But there's evidence that he knew about guns and he still wanted people to march to the Capitol. There's evidence that there was communications between um, between the White House and the Proud Boys. And there's evidence that witnesses may have been interfered with and tampered. That's that that's that's evidence that that gives me pause and, and causes me to sort of reevaluate the situation, which is what I think most rational people can and should do. There's one thing I want to get back to because it's related, at least in my mind, tangentially to the Meadows situation. Yeah. And that is your Ukraine press conference in October of 2019. Now, we're going to have disagreements, you and I, about the the Ukraine stuff. But um, that was where you said, get over it. There's going to be political influence in foreign policy. And... People widely thought the press conference did not go well. Now, what I want to know is, did that press conference get you sidelined in the White House? Did the president look at that press conference and think to himself, I can't have this guy out there saying these things? I, in my, From my perspective, it seemed to me like you were being very honest about what was going on. And the president didn't like that. Am I wrong about that? I know yeah, this is a you, tough you, question, you, 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 but no, I, I no, want to no, know it's, it's, it's what's your perspective. You're actually, and you're actually, you actually are wrong about it. The, the, I saw the president right after the press conference, and he was fine with it. Um, once, once the uh, once the pushback started, he's like, "Oh, what?" You know, he's like, "Make you know, every time if you say something that's 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 eighty five percent right and fifteen percent wrong, they're going to focus on the fifteen percent wrong stuff." He says, "So don't worry about it." So no, that was never that was never an issue uh, between him and me. The, the thing that bugs me about the press conference is that, and I've spoken to college groups, I've speak to groups all the time, and they're like, "Look, th- their interpretation is 
that I said, look, there was a quid pro quo. We did this. Uh, we, we, we held back the money so that uh, they, until they gave us dirt on, on Biden. Happens all the time. Get over it. Which is that is that's become the conventional wisdom because that's what the media wants you to hear. That's not what I said. That's not, not what I meant, but it's certainly not what I said. What I what I what I meant, to, what I said was that, yes, um, we give money to people in exchange for them doing things. That's that's how foreign policy aid works. You don't have a right as a foreign nation to get American taxpayer money. There's always going to be strings attached. Okay, um, and that is anybody who says that's false is just lying to you and doesn't sure, understand but, reality. But that's not usually not usually for the personal benefit of the president, though. That's right. And that, but what I said was at the press conference was, look, there, the reason that we withheld the money, and I, I, I gave this interview a hundred times, right, was yeah. because Ukraine is is no notoriously corrupt. People don't realize this. There's actually laws on the books, laws that govern how we spend money that required us at the time to do higher levels of scrutiny into the spending of our money in Ukraine because Ukraine was one of the most corrupt countries on the face of the planet. I am not making that up. Secondly, we really did not like the fact that the Europeans weren't kicking in. Okay? They all said, oh, we have to help Ukraine. Uh, and we were at that time the only country in the world actually giving them lethal aid. The Germans would say, oh, we have to help, the, we have, we have to help these people. You know, and they wouldn't, they wouldn't actually stroke the check. And when they did, it was for, uh, you know, the joke was for pillows and stuff like that and uniforms. It was never lethal aid. We were the ones sending weapons system. And the president hated that. He says, why are we spending our money to, in, a, in essence, defend this European nation when the Europeans won't even do that? That was the reason we withheld the money, by the way. And by the way, when I say we withheld the money, we only delayed the money. The money went out um, before the, the legal deadline to spend the dough. So, listen, I recognize what the press conference has become. I'll deal with it the rest of my life. Um, and I'm not happy with the way it's interpreted, but I'm comfortable with what I said and how I said it. Could I have said it better? Sure. Um, but the way we handle the money in Ukraine is 100% defensible. The reasons we did it were 100% legal. Uh, impeach. Listen, they were looking for a reason to impeach him, Justin. Um, and they, that may include you, by the way. I think you voted for impeach for the first time, didn't you? Yeah, I did. I, yeah. But I wasn't looking for her reason. I, I saw a reason. Um, so, you, 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 I mean, you, we're, you if you, we're not going to... We're not oh, going to. Oh, we are. No, we're not going to. Li- Let's do it for a second. You don't know the rules about how to spend money. No, I, abs- I absolutely do. You I absolutely don't. do. But but you let's not know, you don't know about apportionment. You don't know about the, the anti-deficiency statutes. You don't know about the Empowerment Act because no member of Congress follows that kind of stuff. No, you I did. Don't. I did follow that stuff for purposes of this impeachment. But but we don't want to relitigate. We only have a few minutes left, so I don't want to yeah. get bogged down in relitigating impeachment um, because yeah. we could we could go on for hours on impeachment. <laughs> um, and, and you and I disagree on that. And, and that's fine. The. Um, the relationship with Meadows, Meadows came in to replace you. Was that a hostile situation for you? Was that no, something, did you all. feel like Meadows was coming into your territory and sort of booting you out? No, I was, I was ready to go. Keep in mind, I was, you know, acting, which is, there, there is no such thing as an acting chief of staff. Um, it doesn't, it, you act, uh, you are in an acting capacity for a Senate confirmed position and, and chief is not an, is, is not an, inter, is not an acting chief of staff. So, I mean, I have been chief of staff. I was supposed to do it for six months, um, and the president and I talked about it and extended for another six months, and then we were still in the middle of impeachment at the end of that six months, which was December 31st of, uh, of 19, and we both agreed it would look bad for the president to change his chief of staff um, during impeachment. Uh, I was hoping it would wrap up by Christmas, and then I'd be done, and I'd go back and run OMB. Um, and then when it rolled over into February and March, by the time impeachment was done, which I think was the first week in February, I, I was ready to go. He was ready to replace me. And Mark, you know, and I had, had been friends and I, I, uh, I thought I was completely comfortable with that. We didn't have a transition like I wanted to. I agreed to stay for two weeks and he and I would, would, would co-chief of staff for two weeks as sort of a transition. And then COVID interrupted that because I got exposed. And then after that, he got exposed so there was very little overlap. But no, there was no hostility there uh, at all in, in that transition. Um, so I know there's that's if there was reported. Other, if there was reported otherwise, it's false. OK, but today it seems like there's tension with Mark Meadows and maybe it's just 
your criticism of him for what has transpired related to January 6th or, or sometime before that. Yeah, um, can, I, can I curse on this? This is a podcast, right? Yeah, you can. You can. I mean, yeah. you. it seems like you've been critical of him. He so. did a shitty job. He was a shitty chief of staff. What can I say? Um, I, heard, I heard part of the testimony on Tuesday that nobody else heard and nobody else cared about, which is that one of the reasons the president was so angry that he wasn't going up to the Capitol was because Mark Meadows assured him that he was. When everybody knew that was not going to happen, and Meadows was not able to tell the president what he doesn't want to hear. That is the chief of staff's number one job. The chief of staff must be able to tell the president shit he doesn't want to hear. And if you can't do that, you are a bad chief of staff. And Mark Meadows just didn't want to tell the president anything he wanted. But listen, you know Mark. He's everybody's best friend, right? He always tells you what you want to hear. He always tells me what I want to hear, etc. And I listen, I got no problem saying that, you know, I just think that the guy that I, I knew and was friends with was just a lousy chief of staff and is partially responsible for January 6th. So uh, I keep getting people asking me to ask you this. What is the <laughs> what is the truth you know Trump fears most? Ooh. I don't no no I don't I don't think there's any I don't think there's any skeletons in the closet. I don't yeah, I don't the truth that Trump fears the most the truth that Trump fears the most is that he lost the election. But in his mind, it's, that's not the truth. So um, he has been convinced. Um, you know, after the first hearings, uh, it became clear to me that one of the key issues was going to be the president's state of mind. And I think, you know, because there's a specific intent to, um, to uh, incitement. Um, and uh, um, before the guns issue came out, I was like, look, you're going to have to prove that that he really thought that he lost the election and this was all just sort of made up so that he could stay in office. But I want you to know that I, I believe with all of my heart and soul that Donald Trump 100% believes that he won that election. He really does. You might say that's irrational. You might say that's illogical. I happen to think it's irrational and illogical. He lost the election, right? He had his chance to prove that he won, just like anybody else would, and he failed at that. He lost the election. That is the truth that he is most afraid of. But in his mind, it's not the truth. Now, do you, do you think that he thinks he won the election because people around him are telling him this? Yes, 100 percent. And he's not able to analyze it in any other way. He just what? people he, come he, up to him. And... Keep in mind, for, for several months, my guess is he never got any other information. That's why I go back to the part about the West Wing being broken that the only people talking to him were the people telling him that he had won. Okay. Now, there was some evidence during the first hearing on, on January 6th, and the Democrats went to great length to show all the people who thought that he had lost, but there really wasn't that much, you know, there were, no one walked in and, and banged on the table and said, Mr. President, you lost, get over it. That, that's, that didn't happen. It was, well, Mr. President, yeah, yeah. You know, I don't think we're going to win this lawsuit in Wisconsin. We don't have any evidence. You know, what, what was Rudy's lines? We got plenty of theories, but no evidence. Um, that, in my mind, um, if, if everybody in the whole world that you know, okay, is telling you X, and you really, really want to believe X, wouldn't it be likely that you would eventually come to believe X? It, you have no evidence to the, to, to the contrary, or the only evidence is coming from people you really, really know hate you? I mean, that's 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 his attitude, right? Well, if it's if it's said on on CBS or MSNBC or CNN, it must be false. I mean, put yourself in his shoes. Um, I, I don't it doesn't it does not justify it. That's not my point. When I say put yourself in his shoes. But if only thing he ever heard was that he won, probably not surprising that he really, really believes that he won. Now, do you think you deserve blame for where things got with Donald Trump? In other words, it got yeah, it got to the point where he's basically out there um, again pretending or believing that he won the election and rallying people to go to the Capitol. Um, whether people want to say that's incitement or something else, um, we can debate that. But the point is, it got to the point where there was a lot of tension, and it looked like he wasn't going to leave peacefully. Do you think you deserve some blame for that? Why? I was. I was. I wasn't you know, just this, as someone as someone who had who had been in the administration. 
Oh, come on, Justin. I mean, seriously, that, that everybody who ever worked for the administration is partially responsible. Yeah, for you were oh, now you're acting uh, chief. That's a Mick. Mick, you're acting chief of you're acting yeah, chief of staff. I had been, been gone. I mean, you you asked me a serious question. I'm giving you a serious answer. I'm gone for nine months. I'm the special envoy to Northern Ireland. I'm locked down in South Carolina with COVID, like the rest of the world. I, I mean, what's how do you even ask that question? Seriously. Well, what's I asked the, it. What's seriously. the basis for that? So is John Kelly responsible? Yeah, maybe. Yes. Is, is Rice Priebus responsible? Perhaps. Yeah, okay, I, I do. Yet, but you see, I, you see the absurdity of that. No, I, please, I don't. Please tell me you see the absurdity. Mick, I don't see the absurdity of it because okay. when people are close to the president and have some influence and, and have some influence on uh, public perception as well, don't you think there's some blame to go around? I, I've been very critical, for example, of um, Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger even who have come out and, and you know, presented themselves as being, as, as being responsible for January 6th? As being cr- – no, no, no. I'm not saying re- – I don't want to uh, say responsible for the specific events of January 6th. I want to be clear. I'm not, I'm not suggesting that. Okay. I'm saying of creating a situation where it could get to something like that, of creating an environment – because when you have people who are pro- promoting someone – uh, defending someone and um, encouraging a lot of the uh, the acts that eventually lead up to something like this isn't that isn't that itself part of the problem that you have people who aren't standing up Justin, to someone? I, Justin, I, I know you don't like the guy. Okay, I, I get that. I know you never liked the guy down there. I never understood why you didn't like him as much. Why you disliked him as much as you did. But that's just crazy, right? That's just like saying that everybody who voted for him is responsible for January sixth. No, no, no. That's that's. Wrong. I'm, I'm way, talking wait, about. Hold, hold on a second, Mick. I'm talking about public. Did, I'm talking about you, public did figures. Vote, did you vote for him the first time? No, I didn't. I'm okay, talking so you about didn't empower him then, but the you know the the seventy odd million people who did empowered him to be president. No, no, no. I think I think there's state. a big difference between a person at home who's voting and a person in Congress or a person who's serving in the White House who's a close advisor. I think there's a big difference in that. Uh, as examples, when when you're going through um, years and years of the kind of behavior that we saw from Donald Trump. It's remarkable to me that someone like Liz Cheney says all of a sudden, oh, this is the worst guy that's ever existed. We have to stop him at all costs. When she voted for him twice and supported him throughout the administration, you can't find a tweet that was critical of Donald Trump, really, for, for Justin, several if years. Trying, if, you, if you're trying to get to the point, the end point, I know we're at the end of the hour, so I hate to end on this, but if you're trying to get to the point where Everybody in the whole world was wrong, and you were right. I'm just, no, no, I'm no. I'm not going to help you on that one. Mick, not. Mick, well, that's not the point. The point no, is, it's close. It's the, it was there. a simple question, which is, do people, do people, Mick, Mick, it's do people in positions of power who have influence. I'm not talking about ordinary voters who helped essentially prop him up for years. Do they deserve some of the blame? No, prop him up for years. The people who are to blame, people are to blame for their own actions. Okay. They are. I mean, using your theory, I mean, the Supreme Court is responsible for, you know, the deaths at, at school shootings. That's just absurd. I mean, that, that's a that's that's a liberal way of looking at the world. And I don't understand why you're why you're actually espousing that other than to try to make the case that you knew all of this was going to happen. And you're the smartest person around and everybody else was wrong. <laughs> I, I just I, don't, I just don't get that. Um, so I'm sorry to end on that. But that's I, I, I it's been a nice conversation. You know, I enjoy your company, but that's. That may be one of the stupidest assertions I've heard about this from the very beginning. That Mick, everybody who's ever crossed paths with Donald Trump, Mick, I'm not talking, you, is somehow responsible for January. No, no, no. 6th. We're talking about. First of all, I said not. I said not specifically January 6th, but that would lead to something that would be dangerous or problematic in a way that is harmful to our country. Yeah, I'm glad people, you can see the future, Mick. I, I people don't in people in positions. People in positions of power and influence. People uh, in high-level positions. We are going to simply to agree to disagree as friends on this one. So I, I, I don't. I think you're beating uh, beating on the wrong door with that one. All right. So. Okay. Well, we dis- we disagree on that. I think that yeah. I think that when you're in a position of power and influence, you do have a responsibility to speak up, 
to say things when there are problems and to stand for the truth. That's that's how I that's how I feel. Now we may have we we can disagree about what the truth is and, and all that, but my point is I do think people should be should take responsibility for actions that lead to certain consequences. So, Mick, what's next for you? What are you What are you up to? And I know oh, you're God. you're working Thank as you a. No, I'm just hanging out, um, doing some. Uh, in fact, I'm going to write two more op eds today. Uh, so I do a little bit of speaking, a little bit of writing, a little bit of consulting. I help with uh, companies that want to understand how the government works. So, because um, not nearly enough people understand how that works. So, but mostly I'm just. Uh, I took care of my dad. Um, my dad had uh, had terminal cancer. I took care of him for several months. I'm he sorry about away. that. Yeah, that's fine. He passed away in October, November last year. And so I've just sort of been uh, trying to figure out what I want to be when I grow up. So, and I enjoy time spending talking to my old friends. So I talked to Sean Duffy yesterday. I talked to you today. Um, so I, like I said, I do miss the camaraderie, even the, even the aggressive camaraderies, as you say, in Washington, D.C. It's one of the things I liked. Um, some, of the, some of the dumbest people I've ever met in my entire life were in Congress, uh, but some of the smartest people I've ever met uh, were there as well. And I do miss that uh, repartee and that that back and forth you don't it's it's hard to get that these days without people uh, devolving into you know, screaming racial and and sexual epithets at each other and that's and that's wrong so uh, I do enjoy the conversation yeah and well for for those who are listening too we used to argue like this back <laughs> All in the, the old days too so it's not this is not uh, yeah, this is that? not new Mick and yeah. I are not um, fighting really with each other right now yeah. it's just that. Um, we had we, strong we have, opinions. I think very candid conversations, yeah. and you have to, right? And by the way, and I'll close with this: it's one of the things that's that's lost uh, on our generation. Let me tell you a story, then I'm going to hang up. Which sure. is that people ask me, "What's the most? What, what keeps you up at night? What's the most frightening thing you've seen in Washington D.C.? You know, what 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 would you worry about most?" And it's actually a, um, a presentation I gave with John Carl um, to a, a group of students from the University of Southern California, and, and Frank Luntz had asked us to to digest and to go over the press conference because it was actually John Carl who had asked me the questions at that press conference about Ukraine and quid pro quo, et cetera, et cetera. And so we were speaking to this class together and John and I had a, a conversation sort of like you and I just did where I said something was absurd and he's like, well, I know you were telling the truth. I'm like, well, thank you for telling me what I knew. And you know, we get back and forth at it pretty good time. Right. And then he left and I stayed around for a while. I was talking to students and one of the young women said, um, can I ask you a personal question? I said, yeah. She goes, are you friends with that guy? I said, yeah. Why? And she says, well, because it seems like you disagree with him on a lot of things. I said, yeah, but we're still friends. I mean, we go to dinners together. We go to baseball games together. Our kids go to college together. We're friends. Why, why do you ask it like that? She goes, well, because I've been raised to, 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 you know, to know that everybody has, can have their own opinion and that every opinion is just as valid as anybody else's. And I cringed a little bit, but she kept going. And she said, but I can never be friends with somebody who disagrees with me. <laughs> and I was, I was floored by that. And I actually pressed her a little bit. And I said, but your, your friends, this guy in the class, I knew she was a little bit center left by the way she asked her questions. And I knew there were other conservatives in the class. So what about that guy you were sitting with? She goes, oh, he's a very nice guy, but I'd never, I would never be seen with him in public. He's a Republican. Um, that's what frightens me, is that people can't have the kind of conversations that you and I had on the floor, that you and I had a little bit here today. Um, the next generation doesn't know how to do that without getting angry and just hating somebody else and never talking to them again. And that worries me more than anything else about the future of the country. Yeah. So I'll, I'll, I'll leave you on that. It's great to talk to you, my friend. Agree with you. Hey, Mick, happy, thanks so happy, in, happy Independence Day. Same to you. And thank you so much for coming on. I, I really had a good time. All the best. We'll see you, buddy. Yep. Take care.